morning, folks. Um, good to have you with us this morning. We are in Genesis, um, still Genesis chapter 3, and I'm just going to be reading a few verses uh, in a moment. I guess it's, it's only in Northern Ireland that you um, will find a radio show called The Blame Game. Uh, you see, we, we love to blame each other. We, we, it, it shouldn't really be our national sport, um, but and this, this show is it's all about the question, who do you blame for? And that could be anything from congestion on the roads to the price of milk and everything else in the middle. Now, admittedly, it's political satire. It can be very, very funny. But it sums up the way that people intrinsically think. However, the writers of this show were certainly not the first people to play the blame game. Let's read Genesis chapter 3, where verses 8 through to verse 13. It says this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, I I can't help but wondering if what it must have sounded like for God to walk through the garden. Have you thought about that? See, we're told in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is a spirit. In fact, the whole verse says God is a spirit, and we and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. However, the sound of walking requires footsteps. So if there were footsteps, as is hinted here in chapter 3, verse 8, could this be God's Son before his incarnation? Was this Jesus that was walking? Does he have a temporary body that veils his glory as it would seem he did when he visited Abraham just a little bit later on in, in, Gen- in, in Genesis chapter 18? Well, the answer is, we don't really know. And the Hebrew actually could mean God's voice which of course does not require him to walk on foot. So no one can really explain how God appeared to our first parents. Yet what is very clear, this familiar sound meant that Adam and Eve knew it was time to hide. And how quickly things have changed. How easily the relationship with God has been destroyed. And and I'm sure they're wondering, as they're hiding in the undergrowth, how could it all have gone so badly wrong? It may have begun with Eve giving into temptation, being deceived by a lie, but Adam willingly sins. He knew that eating that fruit was contrary to God's will, yet he did it anyway. He made a choice, he made the wrong choice, and now he and his wife were trying to cover it up. The consequence was that both Adam and Eve lost their innocence, and we the 
couple of weeks, Satan had promised that they would be like God, knowing evil. And this promise has tragically been fulfilled, that they knew what it meant to, and certainly didn't bring them. It would have been far better if they had obeyed, if they'd grown up in the knowledge of God. Jesus reminds us in John chapter 7, verse 17, he says that anyone who chooses to do the will of God, and anyone who obeys God, will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I am speaking on my own. And we see how obedience and how godly knowledge go together. And only knowledge, the only knowledge that will bring happiness actually comes from God. And although at times it does bring conviction of sin, God's word does not bring condemnation. We've sung about it already. Condemnation is the work of the enemy. Conviction is the work of the Spirit. You're wondering, is, is God speaking? Is this, a, is this from God or not? Listen, if it's bringing condemnation, it's not God. If it's conviction, which is bringing us and building us for our own good, to bring us closer to him, God is at work through his spirit. And this is exactly what is happening here in Genesis chapter 3. In God's presence, there's this realization of sinfulness. There's conviction that should, and I said should, have opened to repentance. And for the first time, Adam and Eve realize their nakedness. Now, please note that the nakedness is not a problem under God's rules until an outsider changes that perspective, until sin enters into the world. But now they're quickly trying to cover up their naked bodies in shame. But listen, sin and disobedience should make you ashamed. God has given us a conscience. He's given us an inner judge, a moral compass that should warn us when you do wrong and actually approve when you do right. So in Romans chapter 2, 15 and 16, it reminds us for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they're doing right. And listen, we need to listen to our conscience. You need to listen to your conscience. Don't ignore it. Actually, Paul goes on to write in the same verses that a day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret. Listen, God knows your every thought. He knows everything about you. Nothing, nothing is hidden from him. And there's a day coming when you will stand before him and you will have to give account for everything you've done, everything you've said, even everything you've thought. So don't fight against the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Don't fight against your own conscience. Sin begins with the choices that we make. Now, we are all people who think. Admittedly, some of us think deeper than others. And, and when you're faced with a decision to make, we think about it, however fleetingly, and we make a decision. And sometimes those choices are good, and sometimes they're not. And we make choices every single day. Now, the bad choices that I make normally involve food. Anybody who knows me well enough will know this. It usually involves crisps and chocolate and often both. And see, nobody purposely sits down to eat an entire family-sized bar of whole nut in one sitting, followed by a few bags of crisps in the space of about half an hour on purpose. See, I think, like most people will, 
few little bars of chocolate, few little, little squares of chocolate would be nice. Before I know it, I'm halfway through the bar, and I've gone that far, well, I might as well finish it off. And then after all that sweet chocolate, I'd fancy something savory. So out come the crisps. And before I know it, I'm surrounded by empty bags, empty wrappers, and the worst thing about it all, now I fancy something sweet. And it just seems to escalate. And this is the terrible downward spiral of sin, which begins so simply. See, no one becomes like this all at once. It can be, even begin by regarding sin with horror so that we view sin with regret and with remorse. Or when it comes to chocolate, feeling quite sick, actually. But, but as you continue to sin, there becomes a time when you actually become desensitized to it and you can tolerate shameful things without any feeling at all. A Native American Christian puts it like this. He says, if I do wrong, it turns and it hurts me until I make it right. But if I keep doing wrong, the arrowhead turns and keeps on turning and wearing down the points so that it doesn't hurt anymore. You see, bad choices lead to spiritual and to moral callousness and our hearts become hardened there's an ancient Greek story about a Spartan youth who stole a fox. I don't know what he wanted with a fox, but he stole a fox. And, and this, the man from whom he stole it from found out, and the boy stuck the fox under his clothes, and he stood there without moving a single muscle while this frightened fox tore apart his vital organs. This boy preferring to die a painful death than to own up for being wrong. And I... Sorry? Cheery story. Cheery story. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. And, but how often sin can be hidden and people stand unflinching, callous and hard, putting on a brave face while at the same time they're torn apart on the inside. And this is the destructive nature of sin. But hearts can become so hard that we don't realize it until it's too late. See, if you're no longer ashamed of sin, well, your character goes as well. But it doesn't finish there because, we, when we, because there comes a point when, when actually God turns away. And the ultimate conclusion of continuing down a path that overrules conscience is that you inadvertently train yourself to do evil and to ignore guilt. The result is a reckless life. It's exactly the same consequence that Paul talks about in, in Ephesians chapter 4 when he writes, they were giving themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they were full of greed. In fact, Paul says a similar thing in the second part of Romans chapter 1. He says sin can get such a grip on a person that he loses the sense of decency and shame. Samuel Uselson a criminal research psychologist writes about the criminal personality. He says this. He says, the idea that a man becomes a criminal because he is corrupted, his environment has proved to be too weak an explanation. We have indicated that criminals come from a broad spectrum of homes, both disadvantaged and privileged in the same neighborhood. Some are violators, most are not. Environment that turns a man into a criminal, it's a series of choices that he makes that starts at a very early age. 
The researchers also concluded that the criminal mind eventually, it says, will decide that everything is worthless. And this is the attitude that will trample on anyone to get their own way. It, it, it may show itself in passions for overindulgence from everything from greed to sexual, to sexual sin, creating people who only care about themselves, who want, to, who want to gratify the craving of their warped minds. So Adam and Eve's shame over their nakedness is actually significant here. Because later on in the Bible, we read that the shameless exposing the naked body is connected with idolatry, Exodus chapter 32, with drunkenness, Genesis chapter 9, with, with demonic possession, Luke chapter 8. In fact, it is the mark of a society that is on the edge of destruction when people make money out of exposing naked bodies for the object of sexual pleasure. The thing is, impurity is inseparable from greediness. Perhaps explains why the sex industry is destroying businesses in the world worth more than one billion pounds a year in the UK. It's why 4,000 women and children are trafficked into this country every year. It is why addiction and greed destroy lives every single day. Now, this may seem extreme, and most people do not reach the depth that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. But I believe this is only due to the protective shield of God's common grace that is shown both to the righteous but also to the unrighteous. It is the preserving influence of the Holy Spirit. It is the prayers of the church. But also it should be a constant reminder to each and every one of us to guard our own hearts, to walk in step with the Holy Spirit every single day. Listen, we need to have soft hearts. Hearts that are open to God, open to the Holy Spirit. Listen, we cannot afford to let our hearts become hard due to sin, due to bitterness, due to anything. The situation for Adam and Eve looked bleak. But even in the middle of the shame and the guilt, we see God's grace at work through a simple question. God asks Adam, where are you? It's a surprising statement because scripture is very clear that God knows everything. He already knows the answer to his own question. In fact, he's not uncertain or ignorant of Adam's whereabouts. Rather, he is showing respect for Adam by calling this man to come to him willingly, but also giving him an opportunity to confess and to repent. And God always questions you for your own good. He gives you the opportunity to face facts, to, to be honest, to, to confess your sins. So, so even though this intimate relationship between mankind and God has been broken, I hope you understand that God is not coming to Adam and Eve as a cruel master, but like a broken-hearted father speaking in love to his wayward children. So the fact that God has called out to Adam at all is an act of grace. God has every right to speak words of judgment and to justly destroy them. 
but it's also only because of God's gracious provision that Adam was able to hear and to respond to God's voice. After all, his inner nature has been so polluted by sin that he just doesn't want to really face God at all. The truth is they should have been running towards God, confessing their sins, asking for forgiveness. Instead, God goes after them. God calls them. God finds them. The evangelist Billy Sunday makes the point that that sinners can't find God for the same reason that criminals can't find a policeman. They're not looking. But here we see an amazing gospel truth that is repeated throughout Scripture, highlighted most dramatically in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we're told why Jesus came. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Listen, if you are a Christian, if you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you already know that God has graciously called you, that he has found you, that he has sought you out, and that he has saved you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He seeks the lost. He brings them to Jesus Christ. And listen, God's voice is still calling out to people today. He's calling you to follow him. Will you listen? Will you obey? So as we have seen, sin produces shame and guilt. But this leads to a further consequence where once there's openness, there's now fear. Adam and Eve haven't only tried to cover themselves from view, they have tried to hide themselves from God. What's more, this cover-up is more than just physical. And Adam's answer to the question is certainly not the whole truth. He doesn't say, I was scared because I disobeyed. That would be the real truth. He says, I'm scared because, because I'm naked. The thing is that shame and guilt will always lead to fear, and guilt and fear usually go together. It explains why Adam and Eve don't want to enjoy this evening of fellowship with the Lord in the garden, because fear and shame and guilt has so transformed the inner person that it's become impossible for them to enjoy the beauty of their garden home. But even though Adam admits that he was afraid, trying to hide from God is certainly a futile activity, and yet guilty sinners still attempt to do the impossible. It's also worth noting that the trees that they have been looking after, been admiring and eating from, were now the things that is used to try and hide two guilty sinners from the face of God. So where nature, and in more specifically these trees, should have been a window through which mankind could see God, it's now used as a barrier to keep God out. But I hope I'm not pushing Scripture too far in saying that there's a hint even here of God's grace illustrated. Because a day will come when a tree will be used for a very different purpose. When a saviour will die on a tree so that frightened, guilty sinners will come to the Lord and find forgiveness. First Timothy 2 verse 4 spells it out, spells out the heart of our Father God. It says, God our saviour desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Through Jesus' death on the cross, barriers will be broken. Healing can be found through 
grace alone and through Christ alone. But God's got a second question. Who told you? Verse 11. Again, God already knows that mankind have disobeyed him and, 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 and the fear and, the, and, and the, the shame is proof of this. But even though this should have led them to confession, to repentance, instead comes blame. And Adam impressively manages to blame simultaneously both his wife and God in one short sentence. The woman you put here with me, verse 12. It's her fault, and it's yours for giving her to me. And when God asks him point blank if he has eaten from the tree, Adam blames everybody else. Eve at least is slightly more honest. She says, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, when people start making excuses, it's usually proof that they do not really understand the enormity of their sin or their need to confess and repent from it. And as sinners, we are very good at finding loopholes, are we not? And then running straight through them as fast as we possibly can. And we are all too good at blaming somebody else. Like Eve, we, we blame the devil, his fault, that's bad enough, but Adam wins the prize for the very worst excuse. It was the woman you give me. Unfortunately, we are not much more different, are we? We can come up with some equally unreasonable excuses from time to time. I wonder if you ever said, if I hadn't had such a bad day, well, then I wouldn't have lost my temper. But subconsciously, perhaps, what we're really thinking is, I'm being tempted by God. It's, it's his fault, really. Or, I've got a lot on my plate at the moment. That's why I'm in such a bad mood. That can become, well, my anxiety is justified. If God wouldn't overburden me, then I wouldn't be so worried about money. So, so we listen to the lies of the enemy. We listen to our own excuses. And we conclude that God is to blame when we fail. But we must never, never, never let anybody else take responsibility for what you've done. Stand up, take responsibility for your own life. In Genesis chapter 3, in just one moment in time, God's order and God's purpose for man, woman, and animals have been completely overturned. Firstly, man was made to rule over the animals, yet he had listened to them. Secondly, Eve was made to strengthen Adam, yet she had weakened him. Adam was told to obey God, yet he had followed his wife into sin. But what we must learn from these verses is that there is no room for blaming others for your disobedience of God. Listen, there are no excuses. When you're tempted, God always provides a way out. This is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, no temptation has overthrown you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I just want to add one little thought of, little note of, of caution here. We need to be very careful how we talk about God and particularly God allowing trials and testings within our lives. 
We need to be the kind of Christians who model and encourage right thinking and right feelings about God. You see, the Bible tells us that God can't be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And God is not the dispenser of evil. We need to understand that. We need to know that God is not the dispenser of evil, even though he stands sovereignly over evil and good. And God stands directly behind good, and somehow, and it is a mystery... He stands indirectly over evil. He is the one who gives generously when we ask, but he is not to blame for your pain. He gives every good and every perfect gift, and he is certainly not to blame for your suffering. So listen, take responsibility for your sin. Take responsibility for your disobedience. But there's another lesson that we must learn. And that is when you sin, and you will sin, confession and repentance is the only way back to God. Amazingly, there are already glimpses of this in this chapter, and there are certainly more to come in the next few verses, that the path to God is a path of grace that is open to all through Jesus Christ. And God reached out in love and in fatherly concern and You need to respond to Jesus in faith and repentance, asking him to fill you with his Holy Spirit, whether that be for the very first time or for the hundredth time or maybe even for the thousandth time, come to him with a humble, contrite heart so that you will have the strength and the courage to obey him in the future. Listen, this is the wonderful message of the gospel, so that even those who are feeling trapped by fear, by shame, by guilt, can find true freedom at the cross of Jesus Christ. Whatever your past, whatever you have done, whatever you're going through at the moment, God is calling each and every one of you today to closely follow him to find forgiveness, to find peace in Jesus Christ. Listen, rather than us playing the blame game, you come to the cross of Jesus. Because there you'll find healing. There you'll find release. Let's just stand together. I'm going to pray together as we finish. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, yeah, it's challenging. And Lord, sometimes it's difficult to get our heads around. But Lord, we are men and women who, young people, Lord, who who need you, who need your cleansing. But thank you, Lord, that through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have hope. Lord, as we've declared it already this morning, Lord, there is hope to be found. And Lord, you are the source of all that hope. So Lord, we look to you once again. And Father, we pray, Lord God, we would just come with open hearts to receive from you this morning. Father, I just pray just for that release of your spirit, Lord, into each of our lives. Lord, for for those who are struggling with sin, for those who are playing the blame game, Father, we pray that you would come and just meet those needs. Father, help us to come with true confession and true repentance. We pray that in your precious name, lead us to the cross, we ask. 
In Jesus' name, amen.